information presented is in no way to be considered as a standard of care, and the content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. The information is provided with no guarantee. All content is for informational purposes only and does not constitute the providing of medical, legal, or regulatory advice. All right. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to this edition of Blue Crew Medicine. Uh, this morning, we're going to talk a little bit about thyroids, so pumping up them roids. This morning, I'm joined by Matthew Greer, first time on the podcast, one of our air care flight nurses here out of Jackson. And coming back for us one more time is Michael David, another one of our flight nurses, uh, flies primarily out of Columbus these days. Thanks, guys, for coming on. Appreciate you. Thank you for having us. Thank you. All right, guys, let's get right into it. So let's talk a little about thyroids. So not everybody's favorite subject. Honestly, I didn't really start looking at this beyond paramedic school until I started studying for the FPC. It's one of those subjects it's not always thought about. It's always listed on the differential, like we kind of talked about before we started. Uh, you talk stroke, and then at the very bottom, thyroid problems. So for y'all, when you think about thyroids, is it something that just automatically comes to mind? Is it kind of one of those just back burner, think about things? Yeah, for me, I mean, it's one of those, uh, you don't treat it very often. So it's um, obviously it does try to fall into where am I at in a differential. Um, it'd be great if we did, but unfortunately, it usually doesn't. Unless you walked into somebody that has a scar on their neck or um, they immediately tell you that, you know, they take medications for what have you or they have a classic presentation of stuff, but you end up falling in the same trap of percentage-wise, this is probably something else. And then if that's not working, you run through your differentials that you have listed before you get to them. And now I'm treating down this pathway. So unfortunately, it's not always at the top. Yeah, I'd, I'd firmly agree with that. You know, we see somebody febrile, tachycardic, you know, based off these symptoms, there's a thousand different other things that we think of before we get down into the rabbit hole of, sure, could it be this, this, and this? And I feel like, you know, it's pretty low on our standard differential of patients we see. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. I mean, it's there, but it's just like, all right, it's kind of set the baseline. It's usually one of those, like you said, kind of back up and punt. All right, this ain't working. Let's let's try this down this yep. road. All right, let's jump in a little bit of patho, a little bit of AMP first. Um, so the big things kind of when you summarize thyroids that I look at are T4 and T3. So that'll tell you most of what's going on with them. I'm not even going to try to pronounce them inappropriately. But both biggest thing with both of them is they stimulate cell metabolism and they increase your metabolic rate. So basically things throws your system into overdrive when they get really too ramped up or it slows your system down. So speed up, slow down. Um, it's kind of like that rabbit button or the turtle button on the tractor. That's right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, right. other thing that thyroid gland does is it produces calcitonin. So it's not something a lot of people always understand. So what that does a lot of times is it actually drops the serum blood level of calcium and promotes blood growth. For a lot of these patients, it uh, makes it kind of challenging for some of our heart patients. So we think of, immediately when I think resuscitative stuff and emergent stuff, I think of calcium is contractility. Mm -hmm. So if you have a whole lot of thyroid or don't have a whole lot of thyroid, don't have a lot of calcitonin in there, it may not have enough contractility. So that's part of the reason why these patients that are in myxedema comas and all those other things, they just... They're hypotensive. They're not contracting. Everything's not working just right. Yep. So, yeah, going in that whole anatomy and, you know, more of that physiology. So we have a normal thyroid pathway, you know. So to actually produce your T3, T4, you have to start with your hypothalamus, 
it sends a signal, goes to your pituitary, then finally gets down to your thyroid. And then your thyroid starts to release either T3, T4, right? And then your parathyroids are kicking in your calcitonin and all this other fun jazz. So when you talk about thyroid hormones in general, T3 and T4. T3 is going to be your active, where T4 is your inactive that has to be metabolized. And typically that's going to run like an 80-20 mix. So, you know, if you run just whatever T4, you're going to have about 80% of that being produced by your thyroid, found in your periphery, all that fun jazz. T3 is about 20% of your total production. And, you know, everything I've read, because, you know, everybody loves thyroid and just spits out that patho right off the top of their head, you can somewhat think of thyroid hormone in itself as like a, uh, you know, a catecholamine-like effect or have a sympathetic increase in tone. So if I have a whole lot of it running around, my cardiac output shooting up. It's going to almost sensitize me to those catecholamines where if I have none of it or I'm in a low state, none of it's going to work. Like, sure, you know, and it's just like our sepsis or our decreased pH patients, right? You stick them with a milligram of epi and if I have a pH of less than 6.8, it's not really going to hit. Yep. Where that's in my mind how I'm thinking of thyroid hormone in this cardiac output states is don't have a whole lot of it low cardiac output, got a lot of it, I'm in a higher cardiac output state. And that'll kind of come in when we talk about these signs and symptoms. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, talking about that, Matt, when you do, um, you add in those other organs that go with that. I mean, like that conversion, T4, T3, you know, T4 being inactive, moving over to T3, those conversions happen in organs and with enzymes. So to complicate your matter more, you've got a, the patient that has uh, a poor liver, or a overloaded liver doesn't convert very well. That same liver patient also gives you coagulation problems or ammonia level problems, or if they have their kidneys are the ones that's changing it over. Um, these sick patients that you already have are already having either uh, a suppressed kidney disease that's there or adrenals that further fall, fall into the same thing or muscular problems that converts it, um, somebody that has muscular disease. I mean, these patients become a true dynamic case that is yes. very complicated when you finally get on board of where you are and then how things may or may not work. You know, it's it, it confuses your treatment down the road by the pathway um, because you're headed one way and you think it's something and you're treating it that way and the things that you're given is actually making them worse. Exactly. Know? So I, I go back when you're talking about that path, though, it's the, like we talked about before we started a little bit, uh, it's the true cases when I talk about medical stuff, and I, I hate to offend anybody with it, but you don't have to be that smart to be a good medical provider. Yes. I do try to educate myself pretty well with it, but when you break down any patient you deal with, you're really only doing one of three things, and it's, it's um, you're either speeding up a process slowing down a process or you're completely taking it out or stopping it. And if you know the pathophysiology of what you're dealing with, um, that's really all you're doing. And these cases that we're talking about today are the straightforward, typical, not complicated of slow down, speed up, or take it out. So going off that, you completely 110% agree with that, right? Speed up, slow down, take it out of the process altogether. In my mind, when I start thinking about thyroid, Three M's of thyroid, right? Metabolic, mentation, and movements. Right. So speed up, slow down, 
or out altogether, right? Mm-hmm. So, and that's that's kind of how we talked about that differential and yep. stuff like that. Kind of starts making my mind start turning if you have decreased mentation, decreased movements, I'm weak, and, you know, somewhat of a decreased metabolic, so low temps. Uh, Sedentary, everything's yes. not working as well. I'm not yes. metabolizing everything. I think of the... You know the fluffy patient that's just got the pedal edema. That's that the typical CHF patient doesn't move around a whole lot. They're sedentary. They they don't want to move. They don't like to move. They just hey, I man, I'm supposed to the refiner again today. I just right. I don't want to get up. Exactly, and that kind of like that speed up, slow down. That is where thyroid makes perfect sense. Yep. So it's you know one of those points of it that in itself points you to what your thyroid disorder is. Yeah. And, you know, um, trying to make the differential like you asked about earlier, um, you know, we are so into uh, acute questions. Um, and I think we try to think about it a lot of, you know, whether it's kids or whatever. Like we, we walk in the door and you say what in the emergency setting or early acute care, critical care stuff of what's going on today. What, why are you here today? What am I faced with? What curveball are you throwing me? These people to push you off into a different direction is more of the thing that you have to be like kids in general, like inputs and outputs for them. It's like, okay, today you said your child was drinking five bottles. What what did they drink two weeks ago? What How many urine outputs did they have today versus two weeks? These are the same thing where you dig into more questions of like what you were talking about of being on, I'm getting tireder. I don't get around much. Or... I've been hot all the time. I feel nervous all the time. I've my heart rate. I feel palpitations more now. This has been going on for two months or whatever. Like that gives you more of the indication that this is more than the acute sepsis problem or overdose problem that's there of a some type of a sympathomimetic type drug. This is more of a underlying thyroid that's gotten out of control or has now went under control. Um, too far because of what their treatment was. So I think that's where we have to shift our thoughts as what we do is while we're here today, what can we save you from today um, to more of a whole picture, holistic asking the questions of people that are there of what what do you have? Because it really plays a role when we go somewhere else and we move them from one spot to another. If you can close that gap before they're, you know, have to wait a solid day before the family can talk to the patient. Yeah, you can get all the information right. that they want. That's right. A lot of these patients, it's the thyroid isn't the primary, it's the secondary, yeah. but it complicates, like you said, it complicates everything and compounds it to mm-hmm. make it 10 times worse than it was maybe by itself. That's right. Yeah. So, I mean, sure, you can have primary thyroid disease, right? That's that's no biggie. That's the typically, you know, we talk about presentations. That's your classic presentations, and those are going to be your slam dunks, you know, Sure, I'm on Synthroid, and I've been out of it for a month for whatever reason. Well, okay, that explains all your symptoms. Whereas, you know, you've got some weird underlying issue, and now, you know, we use the word sepsis a bunch. Mm -hmm. Now I have some sort of infection on top of it. My body's went into hyperdrive trying to treat it. Well, I don't have enough of what I should have Mm -hmm. or that normal response, and now I'm in this weird underlying state that's now been exacerbated, plus whatever other problem I had. What, what kind of stress that caused you to get there? You know what I mean? Yep. We we have people that even worked here in the past that dealt with these same diseases that we're talking about now, and some small um, stressor kicked yep. them into that. Like it's nothing that they knew they had, but something happened, kicked it into overdrive. They didn't have any 
history to go off of other than you asking the questions that would lead into this that's made this situation worse. Exactly. It's been interesting to me anecdotally, you know, you fo- we're fortunate enough here we could follow up on our patients and you fly some, you know, sick trauma patient or sick kid in here and you're looking at them and looking at all these things and they had some weird, we'll just say trauma patient, you know, jacked up, got all the blood, got all the things, these multi-system trauma, and they come out of here and they're on Synthroid. And you're like, what? where did that come from? Right, exactly. And you're like, well, when they were in the ICU, they drew that TSH level and they found out what was going on. So let, let's go into that. So a little bit of that with as far as blood work and diagnosing these patients. So everybody, there's a couple of different things you can do um, here at a level one center, right? We have the fortunate, we have a lot of blood work we can get relatively quickly. Uh, TSH level is one of them. Some of your bigger hospitals may have that opportunity. Some of our smaller partners may not. Mm-hmm. Um, and then T3, T4 levels. Sometimes you get those, sometimes you don't. But still, it may take, with boarding patients now, we might actually get them in the ER. But right. a lot of times, they're in the unit by the time mm-hmm. all that stuff comes back. So for TSH level, it's the most sensitive as far as figuring out what's going on with your thyroid in general. I'm not going to say numbers because every machine's a little bit different. But to me, if it's low... Think hyperthyroid. If it's high, think hypothyroid. That makes sense. So mm-hmm. it's kind of opposites. Right. Um, that was something hard, honestly for me. Yeah. I got to look up every time to make sure yeah. I'm right because mm-hmm. it feels like it should be the other way around. Right. Um, if you're hypothyroid, so if it is high, all right, you're going to look at your T4 to figure out how bad you are. Mm-hmm. If it's low, so it's a hyperthyroid issue, you're going to look at your T4 and your T3 to figure out what's going on. That's right. Again. I would highly recommend you look at what your machine says, look at the normal labs, look at the normal numbers to make sure you get those numbers right. Yeah. Yep. And it's digging down into it even more. I mean, you know, it's a, the, the cool thing about when you're talking about the labs and the patho, like, you know, it's got the press on the gas pedal type response. Like, you know, it says, hey, I need more. So it stimulates more to release the T4 and T3 and the conversions of T4. Um, but what's cool about it is, just like everything in the body, it's balanced. So you have the reverse side. So you have reverse T3s and all that that can be drawn and looked at. And that's the brakes to say, hey, I've got enough and we're reversing this process. So it's the negative feedback process that's there, whether it's um, biological within the body doing it itself or um, uh, outside giving it to them. Like, you know, you're giving them some kind of a thyroid medicine and the brain is still seeing the upper levels and it's and it's starting the negative feedback process to stop. So I just think it's kind of cool when you look at all of it. You talk about all that in class and you think about it in small pieces, honestly, probably nobody really thinks about it a lot, but this is a very cool process in this, in this organ system that you truly see positive feedback, negative, negative feedback, feedback yep. that you can truly measure and watch. Yes, indeed. Mm-hmm. Now, again, like I said, a lot of these people are not going to have the TSH levels, and they, we've talked about the time for that to come back. So some of these patients are going to treat empirically. So a lot of that empirical treatment is based off of intraoperative diagnosis, but let's kind of talk a little bit about assessment. Matt, you kind of touched on a little bit, but let's talk a little bit. Let's go ahead and do hyperthyroid first and just some of the general assessment findings you're going to look for, and then we'll go into hypo. So just like you hinted to, this is going to be more your clinical diagnosis because a TSH, you know, Sure, here you might be waiting an hour or two, but if you've got a patient that's kind of sickly, it's going to be pointing toward a clinical diagnosis. You're yeah. not going to wait to hang the levo drift? No, no, no. You're going to have to work on our TSH, the, the, TSH um, 
iStat cartridge. Right, yeah, right, yeah. That's on your list. Yeah, and there, there, there's no <laughs> there's no exact lab when it comes to hyperthyroid that says, hey, I'm in thyroid storm. Mm-hmm. You know, you're, you're not going to send a patient to CT and be like, hey, radiologist says we're in thyroid storm. No, no, you, doc, you got to do some medical stuff. You know, amazing thought medical people doing medical stuff. Yeah. But so to me, you know, your typical findings or your clinical clues – First one off the bat is exophthalmus. Like, that's your slam dunk, you know, sure, you're pointing towards grave disease. Mm-hmm. If you walk in and somebody's eyes look like they're protruding out of their head, minus some trauma to the head, right. so, something's yeah. not, not right. Yeah. Pretty much everybody um, has that one. Yeah. I mean, it's the classic everybody knows yes. that the swelling there, this is probably a hyperthyroid. Yeah, yeah. Right. yeah. So in that, you know, going back to some of my background, like ER, if you're coming in with complaints of tachycardia, palpitations, Restlessness, anxiety, you know, hey, in the last couple months, you know, you put them on a scale, get a weight. Wow, I didn't weigh that, you know, two, three months ago. I've lost a bunch of weight. Well, have you been trying? Mm-hmm. No. Okay, well, that's another hint. Well, hyperthermia is another one I like to think about is, you know, your febrile, but like you hinted to, there's no obvious source. Like, mm-hmm. we just came out of the COVID pandemic, right? So, have you been coughing? You know, are you having symptoms of an illness? Well, not really. Well, then why is your temp 104? Right. I ask them what they keep their thermostat at home. Yeah. Like, you know, most people, I keep mine at 68. But right, yeah. Um, if you keep it normally 68, 72, and hey, have you been turning your thermostat down? I'm like, no, it's done like 65. Or hey, I put, yeah, I put a new window unit in my house. I'm like, I think my AC's going out. Yeah. Well, they can't tolerate the heat. They're not tolerating yeah. it as much. Yep. That heat insensit- uh, insensitivity is a yeah. big hint. And, you know, with the tachycardia, you can have new onset AFib. That's another big one. And there's kind of a a scale on severity, but I also think of it as like a screening tool almost, which is the Birch, we're ta- I'm going to butcher this, Wartofsky scale. And that can kind of gauge if you're in that thyroid storm, also hyperthyroid, right? I'm not going to go into everything that's on the scale because there's like, 10 different pieces you can hit on. And based on this score, you know, you're likely to be in storm. Based on this score, you're kind of likely to have hyperthyroid. To me, when you use a scale, it's anything like the surge criteria. This isn't in my mind. Sure, if you use that scale, it's pretty sensitive. You know, there's a thousand different things that can cause a bunch of symptoms. Mm -hmm. So, you know, sure, if you're using a scale or a screening tool or something like that, just be aware, like that Borch-Rotovsky scale, it's highly sensitive, but the specif- specificity, yeah. you know, specificity, haha, that word might not be there, you know. So, you know, you, I'm going to think about it, you know, in these clinical scenarios where, sure, patient sickly, labs are pending. Would I want to go ahead and empirically treat? Sure, maybe, Probably. yeah. That's a reference card. I'm gonna have to put in my pocket, yeah. Matt. Just so you know, I'm gonna have to put that. Well, there's the there's a handy dandy thing called MD Calc. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Pull up on your yeah, phone. Bam, there we go. I got yeah, it. That's good. Exactly. Also looking for goiters or an enlarged thyroid gland. That's another one that's pretty obvious. So, hey, they got a goiter. I, I used to hear uh, residents all the time, especially like you know, well, they don't have a goiter. They're sitting there, they're walking home. Like, you really assessing it on everybody? And I thought I was thinking about. It. I was like, all right, well. If this ER intern is assessing on everybody, it's probably halfway important. Somebody gave him a lecture sometime about it. So I started looking. I was like, all right, well, I'm going to look. But it's not something you're always going to see. Right. It just gives you more of a piece of information of a good exam 
I think when you find stuff like that, that are some of those cool findings of, uh, they teach you in school and everybody always kind of says you forget about it in general, but, and, and you do, honestly, I guess. Um, but some of those small things, it's, um, gets you back to your hands-on assessment and it, it adds more input into your brain that you've checked more boxes that were there so you don't miss the little small thing. Because all things we were just talking about, I mean, if you walk in, somebody's eyes are bulging out of their head. You go back to every school you ever had and said, number one, that's not normal. So you ask them, were you born with your eyes bulging out of your head or not? Exactly. And when they say, no, this has been the last six months, then you're like, supposed okay. supposed to go see my eye doctor. Yeah. They hadn't got yeah. me in yet. Yeah, they told me about this big word starts with an E. Mm -hmm. And so, like, okay, I got that. So now all the other symptoms that we talk about are things that everybody has. So those are the small things that you miss. And so when you put your hands on them and you're feeling for gorders, looking at eyes, checking actual vital signs and assessments that are there, and you look at stuff like you're talking about, uh, this guy has a temperature of 104, okay? Um, that's not a normal, not saying a sepsis patient can't have 104 temperature, but normally you don't have this raging febrile that's within sepsis. Uh, the guy's not in an athletic sporting event in the summertime. He's yeah. normally not going to yeah. have 104 fever. Um, so, But if you walk in the door and they're like, he was febrile, and you don't talk about it anymore, the same way if you look at their neck and you just kind of go across and it's like, Michael just has a fat neck. If you don't put your fingers on it and you and feel, feel that it, I yeah. have a gorder, you might miss it. So, and, and probably some of those lectures come off the fact that somebody along the way missed it. And so they are pretty passionate about some of the things like, hey, I missed it. This is what I do and make sure that you do it. And they hopefully pick up on it. So in talking about missing things, that, that brings me to like, you know, we always talk about anxiety, restlessness, you know, increased sensitivity, blah, 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 blah. Something that, you know, reading through this, because, you know, I'm no professional endocrinologist, I had to read through it. What caught me off guard or something that I didn't think about is, you know, as far as mentation, it starts off as restlessness, anxiety, just feeling kind of uncomfortable in your own skin. In the later stages, you progress to like an excited delirium, right? That's, you know, they're, they're acting crazy. You know, you'd think about it, you know, is this a, you know, it's almost a, like coming out of a K-hole. That's yeah. the best way I can describe yeah. it, watching some people do it. Is, it's like it, coming out of a K-hole. Is this somebody that is, you know, an ingestion or they taking something? You go a little bit further, they've progressed into a coma state. They are, they're gorked. Yeah. And that's something you're talking about, you know, hey, what's your normal? Mm -hmm. Do you have a history of something where, you know, a bunch of times we come on scene or go into a facility and we're already, you know, this patient's 30 minutes to an hour down the road from initial healthcare encounter. Hey, what were they like when they came in? Did did they have a GCS of, you know, seven when they got here? Right. Well, no, they were they were real excited and were acting crazy. And well, did you give them anything? No, they just kind of got real quiet. Yeah. Like that's in in my mind, that's another hint or clinical mm -hmm. clue. Like, all right, you know, it's not an everyday situation to where you go from a little bit anxious, excited del delirium to alter GCS, and we're talking about a tube a little bit later on, right? The other thing that, you know, we're assessing these patients, when you do the the medication biopsy, if they're on a beta blocker, obviously they're on Synthroid, but mm -hmm. look for the beta blockers too. That's another thing. I mean, they have this extensive heart history. Yeah. yeah, it's complicated, but they may not be able to tell you. They may be in that coma state or what have you. Hey, that beta blocker may clue you in. Hey, somebody's already recognized this a little bit, but they can't tell you, so right. it's there. And to, you know, go back to agree 100% what you're saying is, 
ingestion. What if you have somebody that's normally hypothyroid and taking, you know, daily synthroid like we're talking about? What if they've been in a little depressed state or somewhat uh, altered, blah, 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 blah? They've now taken, you know, their whole 90-day supply of Synthroid and are in this thyroid storm picture. That's that's one of those things to where, you know, sure, we've we've hinted to where, okay, they're on a beta blocker at baseline. They're on, you know, 75, 125 mics of Synthroid daily. Okay, that's another one of those things. Did they bring their medicine bottle with them? Yep. They got this filled two weeks ago, and it's now empty. Like, yep. right. that's, that's one of those things to where just to confound and confuse you a little bit more, yeah. you know, sure, you know, oh, they're hypothyroid in their history. Did they take half their bottle today? Yeah. So we talked a little bit about assessing the hyperthyroid and the Graves' disease kind of picture. Let's talk a little bit about the hypothyroid. Um, so breaking down those patients that are a little bit on the slow and the turtle end of that uh, tractor stick, if you will. So fatigue. Uh, the other thing I notice a lot is impaired memory. Mm-hmm. Like they're slowly just can't, they can't get their thoughts together, can't get everything right. It's almost like that um, ataxic stroke patient. Yeah. They just can't can't quite get everything out. They're so everything's slow. They can't get out of the chair. They're hey, you know, mom or dad or, you know, family brought the patient in. They're just not moving around. I hadn't seen them in a couple of weeks and they're just slowing down and they can't move as much. Everything they don't want to get out of the recliner. Uh, they're losing their hair. It's another one thinning hair. Dry skin. Other thing is constipation. A lot of people look at that as kind of benign, but right. everything slows down. Your GI mm-hmm. tract slows down too. They just, they, man, they ain't getting out. And then unexplained weight gain. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the opposites. Anything else y'all pick up on for hypo? So in the acute stage, because that's, I'm, we're, we're not managing these people long term. Yeah. In my mind, I think once you said slow, so, or slow and low, right? Hypothermia hypoventilation, hypotension, bradycardia, uh, you know, delayed deep te- uh, tendon reflexes. And they're, they're just not really as responsive as they should be. And then you can have some pit and edema of the face and hands. And uh, so that's that's more of those in the acute setting where you're heading more toward that, you know, myxedema coma. That, that's where my mind goes to. Yeah, sounds like y'all are just describing me a whole lot. Probably, just <laughs> yeah. I mean, all this whole you know slowing down weight loss, weight gain that you don't really know much about, and memory fog or things that's there. So well, some of that's I, just going with age. I, but, I look yeah. at it as birthday candles, but yeah, yeah. I was about to say I might have to go look into my stuff a little more. So now, and you know, we talked about vital signs and stuff like that. So in some more of this, you know, somewhat stable picture or you know long term findings, uh, you know. Once again, me and Google, looking through all these different uh, evidence-based journals, diastolic hypertension. Mm-hmm. This is your patient where, you know, you're, you're looking back at, you know, some of your old records or you're asking, you know, what's their baseline? You know, have you seen this patient a lot? Well, yeah. What's their vital signs normally like? Mm-hmm. And they're like, oh, they're they're normally like, you know, 130 over 100. Like, a hundred? You sure about that? Well, yeah, it's right here documented like 15 times in a row. Well, and that's just more that, you know, I'm going to, you know, compensate for what's already going on. That's what diastolic hypertension on a long-term patient is kind of a compensatory mechanism. In the acute phases, throw that out the window because compensatory mechanisms, you know, that negative feedback loop, my body's trying to adjust, it's gone. But you get a lot of those hospitals, they print out the, you know, text and stuff. It's, 
kind of nice to look sometimes oh, yeah. to see what their baseline labs are and lay the baseline yeah. vital signs. Especially when you get into the management stuff that we get into a little bit later. Um, uh, it's because, you know, if somebody has dilated cardiomyopathy, you know, normally that that is something that will cue you in on, yeah, your management that you got to do things, but the, the line that you have to walk. Or if they do have uh, normally a diastolic hypertension, um, that same patient that may have been hypotensive on you and you do the whole... Uh, I got them headed in the right direction. They're at a 110 over 60. I'm good because yeah. I cleared 100. That patient does not live there. Like that patient actually needs more. Um, and so it kind of gives you the guideline um, of where to be. And, and, and unfortunately, and what we do in general, um, we're not intensivists. We're not family medicine. We're not people that manage people long term. But the acute side that we have, we can make long term complications for somebody when we stop um, if you don't paint some of the pictures so you know when people ask you those questions of what's your blood pressure that you're good with or whatever it's kind of more of a thing that we talk about every time that we do one of these is where does the patient that I'm dealing with live and what is their norm and where do I need to get them instead of all three of us sitting there at the same patient saying well I think they should be a little more hypertensive or a little more hypotensive than where they are um, it gives us a ground, uh, I guess, to be at to say, if this is where they normally live, then I agree with you, Will, we need to keep going with this. Like, we need to make them a little more, not real hypertensive, but hypertensive in a clinical setting for what we're used to. Yeah, by standard, by text on. definition, right. hypertensive, but by ours, right. it's normal tensive and we're maintaining perfusion where they normally live. That's yeah, right. We might not be, you know, as resuscitationists, and that's what I feel like we do a lot of the time is resuscitate. And in my mind, you know, map 60-65, oh, we're, we're, we're killing it. We're there. Whereas your point, if they live with a map of 100, 60-65 might not be perfusing. That's right. That's you might cold. get them more combative than actually back to, yeah. you know, yeah, they're out of a coma now, but they're super combative. Right. Why? Because they're underperfused. Their That's head's right. not perfused. Yeah. That's what they're used to. Perfect. So let's work our way in a little bit of the management side of this. Again, we've talked a lot about, about slowly recognition and how these patients are usually super complex. It may be something on the tail end of something else. They have something that kicks it off. So CHF, sepsis, COPD, mm. trauma, all those things could be complicating factors. And this is kind of sitting in the background. It just makes everything exaggerated and aggravated and 10 times worse. That's right. So working back, let's, let's, We've, we're sitting on hypothyroid right now. Let's just, let's go with a little bit of the treatment. Sure. So mixed edema coma, right? So that's the, the one everybody gets tested on. That's the one where everybody talks about. It's the super bad version of hypothyroid. Mm -hmm. And acutely can really be a bad day for a, right. a lot of work involved. As far as y'all's management, the biggest complication I see, honestly, the with presentation or biggest clue, like, hey, this is what this is, or this is one of my differentials, is the hypothermic. Mm -hmm. They are cold. I mean, cold as ice. As far as warming them back up, one thing I want to make sure we say is we don't do it quick. No, they didn't get that way quick. We don't fix them quick. Yeah. With anything that we do, especially in this where you're talking about a gland, right? Typically, this is a progression, and this has happened over weeks, months, and now we're at a tipping point. We don't just jump through the hoops to get them back to where they were. You know, this is a slow progression. Anything like this, they didn't get like this yesterday. We're not going to fix them in 30 minutes or an hour. And it makes it tough because in our own world, like an air medical team. Yes. 
um, you are usually judged and QA'd on time in a hospital, transport time. Uh, maybe you have a 60-minute transport time. Maybe you have a 10-minute transport time. And just the driving force of yourself is I got to do a lot of stuff. Yep. So you try to think that you need to do a lot of stuff. Or I tell people all the time in managing people, there are a certain percentage, which is small, that you drop a really huge boulder into a small body of water or like puddle and you displace a lot of water quickly. So that's very aggressive, quick management. Majority of everything we're going to do is the game of inches. So you're doing something, see the effect. You're doing something, you see the effect because there's so many adverse effects to doing it quickly. Yeah, we make them look better and our numbers are good when we drop them off and we say we did a whole lot of stuff and they were really, really sick and we got them where they were. But when all of that catches up or wears off, it makes long-term complications. But so it's one of those that just, it's hard to do what we do and go back to what you're talking about of they didn't get there overnight. You're not going to fix them in 10 minutes. You're probably still going to drop them off with hypothermia, but are they better hypothermia than when you found them? Like, and understanding that everything that you're doing may be affected by that hypothermia. And the biggest complication, the reason why I want to want to stress that specifically is it causes vasodilation when you warm them up. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so these patients, uh, the, the patient I think of hypothyroid that comes to mind complication-wise with the myxedema coma is a patient initially that we flew that was, oh, it's just cold sepsis. Mm -hmm. They're Now they're 85 and cold septic, right. but they're cold septic. Mm -hmm. And you're like, okay, well, great. I'm going to warm them back up a little bit and this, that, and the other. And you think about, all right, what's the disease process with sepsis? Now they had a source for sepsis, mm -hmm. but they also were hypothyroid on a baseline. And then just, again, this tipping point of right. building it up. It's a lot easier for people in our world to pull a trigger than it is to put it back on safe. Right. Yes. And so it's one of those, all right, that's real easy to, man, I'm going to turn the heat on. I'm going to do all that stuff. Yeah, okay, I'm going to turn it on a little bit. I'm going to make sure they're wrapped in blankets, but I'm going to monitor a core temp or, and get a good reference point. So this is where I'm starting. I'm going to increase it a little bit here, and I know. But the biggest thing is that handoff. You're dictating the downstream care, right? It's a game of inches. Right. A lot of people use a snowball effect as a negative a lot of times. I use it sometimes as a positive. You're just building up. So I'm going to build it, and I'm going to push it, and I'm going to throw it to the receiving team and say, hey, look, this is where I started. Mm -hmm. This is what needs to happen. Can you help me out? That's right. So in getting into the management, right, so address that portion of it. You know, you look in any textbook, any evidence-based journal, blah, endocrine, whatever, it's going to go down a similar pathway, right? So you're going to start with actually addressing the cause. You're going to give them some sort of thyroid hormone. Now, it comes in T4 or T3, right? So you're either going to get Synthroid Levothyroxine or you're going to get T3, which is an active component, and it is very minimal dosing, high, high effects. So second, you're going to see them addressing hypocortisolemia. So you're going to give them some hydrocortisone, and that's kind of to address that underlying uh, adrenal insufficiency if they have it. So then you're going to see hypoventilation. How do I address that? Well, are we going to intubate them? Maybe. Are we going to try to do positive pressure? Are we going to support that? That's where it gets a little bit more finesse. If you, you know, we, we all three know a laryngoscope can be a handle of death. Uh, so... Maybe we shouldn't just jump straight into, oh, they're altered with a GCSF5 tube. Uh, maybe not, because you're going to kill somebody that way. 
Well, it's just we just had an episode the other day of resuscitate before you intubate. This is one yes. of the patients you mm-hmm. the resuscitation process and the treatment of the thyroid. All right, well, let's put them on BiPAP. Yes. Use that as my pre-oxygenation standpoint. Let's see what they can maintain on BiPAP. I've got to increase my inner thoracic pressure. I got to do all those things. I got to make some PEEP and get them oxygenated, make sure they're not hypoxic, the yeah. hypoventilation side of it. Yeah. But get them back. Exactly. Now, on the flip side of that, I loved how you brought up PEEP and intrathoracic pressures. These patients tend to be a little bit volume down because one of the presentations can be similar to like a norovirus. You know, oh, I've decreased mentation. I've been kind of sick to my belly, all the things. If you throw them on a whole, like, crazy settings, right, or you try to hit them with a whole bunch of peep, whole bunch of positive pressure, you reverse your normal intrathoracic pressure. I'm not getting preload anymore, and I'm already volume down. While I'm in a low cardiac output state, because thyroid is essentially, in my mind, increasing cardiac output. Well, if I have none, none of it, and now I've dropped all my preload, you have no cardiac output, you have no preload, and now you have no blood pressure where you typically are already a little bit hypotensive. So you have effectively murdered someone mm-hmm. by your therapy. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm going to fix them now. No, you're putting them further down a rabbit hole. So they can be hypotensive. That's one of the normal findings, right? So a little bit of fluid. What fluid in my mind? Hyponatremia typically is found in these patients. So I'm going down probably a saline pathway. Or, you know, if you have LR on your ambulance, on your aircraft, if that's the only thing, you know, we had a saline shortage a couple of years ago. If that's what you got, it's going to raise you up. You have, you know, around 130 parts of sodium in your LR compared to 154 in saline. If your sodium's 120, it's coming up anyways, right? We've talked about hypothermia, hypotension. I'm going to give fluids if you need to throw in some pressors. Cool. That's one of my thought processes in these hypothyroid patients. Are you responding to pressors like you're supposed to? Mm-hmm. It's one of those you get in two sides of what you just said is, are the pressors responding appropriately? So do I need to go ahead and give the Cortef a little more proactively? Yep. And what dosing of Cortef is it a truly we're going to shock stay? We're going to give the shock dosing. Are we going to give a little bit of sprinkle dosing? What, how are we going to play that game? The other side of this patient is they also can have thickening of their cardiac connective tissue. So they have like this weird hypotensive CHF picture Mm -hmm. and you're like, all right, well, is this just, they're getting pulmonary edema because they can't back everything up and then they're having this and you're like, okay, well, I didn't put them on BiPAP because they got pulmonary edema and dial them out with nitro and you're like, so everybody, we sit here talking about this stuff. You see how it gets complex really, really fast, which was like five minutes. We just went from hypotensive CHF patient to we're a given Cortef. That's right. Exactly. And just going down that, you know, looking at our evidence-based management. And this is one of my minds when we talk about airway and hypoventilation. Hypoglycemia is kind of normal in these patients. Do I intubate somebody with a glucose of 20? No, probably not. I'm going to support that airway by non-invasive means. And we're going to give you some dextrose and see what happens. That GCS of six will probably be a little bit better if you actually have some sweet stuff floating around. That's that whole balanced fluid thing. You know, you're talking about saline. Do I give, you know, LR, plasma light, or is there some D5 component TPN thing going on? Yeah. All that kind of stuff. Think downstream ICU now in our resuscitated world. Eh, Whatever. But if you get a number, fix it that you can easily fix, make sure that's not the problem. That's right. And then the last thing, and we've kind of smoked this topic, is precipitating event, right? Mm -hmm. If you got uh, an infection, treat your infection. If you've had some sort of traumatic event, treat the trauma, right? And I think we we do really good 
as a programmer, as healthcare providers of, oh, you need antibiotics? You're getting all of them. But mm-hmm. in this situation, you know, or in my mind, treating the patient for what's actually killing them right now is my focus. Now, you see how far down it is on that eight topic right there. Precipitating event is last. You know, it's not ABCs with A being ampicillin or whatever it is. No, that's what we do is ABCD. And then in my mind, then we circle back around. All right, how do I treat them? Well, something probably led to it. Let's let's get them some antibiotics. A is for airway, not antibiotics. The complexity of these patients is, again, it's identifying that, hey, this is something going on. This is something wrong. A lot of the treatment pathways we talked about are, you know, all right, establish perfusion. Yep. This is, I mean, don't don't overcomplicate this. Establish perfusion, maintain perfusion, make sure you kind of get where you're going, and then start working on the process. So the the big takeaways here are use pressure if you need to. Levo is obviously a good choice, generically speaking, here as well. Mm-hmm. Don't forget if they need Cortef, give them Cortef. Now, if you can check the levels and all that fun stuff, or you have that ability, great. If not, and your pressors aren't working, that's usually anecdotally the easy way to tell. Hey, they need something. Yep. Um, for dosing of that, it's anywhere from 50 to hundred milligrams. Typically the shock dose is 200, mm-hmm. but use what you see is appropriate there. Yep. Um, make sure you're using Solucortef, not Solumedrol. Mm-hmm. Just right. Well, and what I looked into is not everybody has Cortef. You might only have Decadron, right? right? Dexamethasone. If I don't have it and I have Dex, your whereas, you know, your 200 milligram shock dose of hydrocortisone, Four to eight milligrams of DEX is going to get you there. You know, if we live in a world nowadays where, especially, you know, in a transport environment, not every ambulance service carries what we have. Not every hospital carries what UMC does. So, I mean, you kind of got to get a little bit creative sometimes. Whereas, I mean, we're dealing with the supply of one of our drugs right now we use every day. So it's like, hey, what do you got available? What can you get? Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you don't have Cortef, you can always lean to uh, dexamethasone. That's a great point. Yeah. And it's four to eight milligrams uh, is going to be more of your shock dose. But And that's IV, not not sex. PO. <laughs> sugar, salt, and sex. You just got to replace them all. I mean, that's where it comes from, and it starts in the brain, and it's going to end up the kidneys. We're not talking about kidneys a lot, but it goes together with it all the time. And um, it's just uh, when you fix the ABCs and go back to sugar, salt, sex, and, you're, and that's where that's, uh, that's there. And it's mm-hmm. pretty easy. So now I'm going to throw in one more thing to just confound everything, right? So you've got the, you know, let's imagine our patient, right? We rolled in on, they're cold, bradycardic, hypotension. You know, okay, well, we started some drugs. We're trying to reestablish perfusion. We run in our ISTAT because we have it, right? Their sodium comes back as like 117 and magically they start seizing. That's fun. Mm-hmm. That's in my mind, that's where we can talk about hypertonic as fluid resuscitation because are they seizing because they have some weird mentation or ingestion? No, they're seizing because of sodium, which is very common in these patients, hyponatremic. Once it gets to a certain point, everybody's point's a little bit different. If I'm living with a sodium of 140 and now it's 125, my brain might not like it. Mm-hmm. So, you, sure, let's give hypertonic in those situations. An adult's going to be about 50 to 100. You're going to give it to stop the seizure, not fix a number, right? Yeah, don't worry so much about Now, be mindful of how fast you correct yes. it and don't cause a demyelination. And also, we just did a bunch of stuff education-wise here about it. But, yes. you know, no more than 6 and 24 hours, all this, all those fun things. But 
if you be mindful of, hey, you got to give enough to stop it. But hey, this is a problem. It's not something you can just correct. Yep. Now, yep. if you're on the street and all you got sailing, great. Right. Give them sailing. Exactly. And that's one of those. You know, I love the weird, the weird scenarios because for somehow they they find me. Right. And that's one of those. You know, if you get a patient that's altered, bradycardic, hypotensive, hypothermic, and now you throw a seizure on top of the mix, that's kind of point in my mind of, all right. We, we've got some endocrine metabolic going on. And that's just, you know, if you get one of those weird presentations, is benzos really going to help you? Well, sure. You, benzos are kind of like a slam dunk for any seizure. It's not going to really. It, che- it checks you. the box. It, it checks, checks the box, but your underlying problem with these patients if they start to seize is typically your sodium. All right. So we fit hypo pretty well. Just know there's a lot of complications, a lot of things going on with it. Um, let's, let's hit on the. Thyroid storm, um, the honestly, I think we see more of these than anything else. Mm-hmm. Now, the, the myxedema coma patient, I just wanted to mention this real fast before we move on to storms. It's a big differential with stroke patients. Keep that in mind. Whether it's ICH or ischemics or what have you. Hell, they had NIH. There's plenty of myxedema comas. We flew one, what was it, last year we flew one? Um, not We, our team did. Um, differential, got TPA, this, that, and the other. Crew gets there, walks in the door, start looking at them, start doing all the things, and realize, hey, this was definitely mixed in with coma. Great, they got TPA. Okay, we're watching, but right. there's other differentials going on there too. But stroke is a big one there. All right, so working on a storm, thyroid storm, so everything in hyperdrive. Well, I hit that, I hit that rabbit on the tractor, man. It's going way wide open. Uh, tachycardic, hypotensive. Uh, they are, they got a temp. Uh, every one of them I play with, they've all got a temp. Nausea, vomiting is another one. They just can't keep her. Their stomach's excited. Everything's, it just needs to come back up. Uh, they're delirious, anxiety. Like I said, it's coming out of a K-hole. A lot of those patients, they can't sit still. They come in from an ER standpoint or from EMS to, hey, they won't sit still. They're nothing wrong. They're acting crazy. They're throwing stuff around their house. Uh, picked up one one time and literally was, I mean, destroyed, broke all the windows in her house. Right. All those kinds of fun things. For our management from an EMS side, not a whole lot we can really get away with other than recognize, hey, there's a problem, there's something going on. Mm-hmm. Is there anything you can guys can think of that you might be able to handle on the street? So, in you know, when you talk about management of this patient, recognizing it on the street is going to be kind of difficult. You know, if, if you just roll up to somebody's house and they're in this excited delirium state like you pointed to, they're febrile, they're tachycardic, they're hypertensive. Sure, that can be in your differential, but to say, oh, yeah, this is thyroid storm, that's going to be kind of hard. Uh, now, when you talk about managing numbers, what are we going to do with that? You know, if it's true thyroid storm, one of the key components of treatment is beta blockers. And they, you know, they have this mythical IV propanolol. I, I did confirm it. It, it, it exists in our hospital, yeah. <laughs> uh, but it does not exist in our world. And I'm relatively sure, certain no transport agency is going to have it. Mm-hmm. If you do, please let somebody know and <laughs> let us know how you found it. It's like a unicorn. But, but when I was looking into it, so propanolol is a nonspecific cardioselective beta blocker, right? So non-selective. The closest thing in our world we have to a that is going to be labetalol. So, you know, sure, if you have somebody that you have found that is in this sort of painted picture box that we give you, is giving them a small test dose, you know, 
I'm not saying walk in the room and here here's 20. No. You know, 5, 10 milligrams of labetalol going to hurt them if this is hyperthyroid? Probably not. It's probably going to benefit them a little bit. Now, if, you get, if you're in a hospital setting and you have all the fun tools and you get thionamides like methamazole and PTU and, you know, you get... Uh, Which are also mysterious in the ER for right. the most part. Yeah, no joke. And then you get into some of these uh, concentrated iodine solutions like uh, Lugol's. Sure, you can play with all that fun stuff, and there's a definite sequence you can give it in. In our world, or the you know street side of things, walking in and slamming you know forty milligrams of labetalol, and oh, they're in excited delirium. Let's give them three hundred ketamine IM. That's probably the worst scenario. If you want to give them you know a low dose labetalol, maybe a benzo, because this problem is you know this big everything's hyperdrive right. You're in this hyperadrenergic state. Give them a low-dose benzo. That's going to help block that adrenal drive coming from the brain. Give them a low-dose labetalol, which is, you know, in, in theory, similar to your propanolol. Is it going to hurt? No. Is it going to help? Maybe. You know, in, in our scenario, our perfect world we live in where nothing's gray ever, mm-hmm. we have a fun drug called Esmolol. You know, and is Esmolol going to help? Probably. You know, that's that's one of those. Quick on, quick off. Yep. Exactly. So the reason I said don't give, you know, a big whopping dose up front is these patients can go into a high cardiac output heart failure. You know, completely redundant in my brain, like high cardiac output, heart failure. Those are the opposite end of the spectrum. Mm-hmm. But they can have a tipping point to where if you give them a big whopping dose of something, you may tip them right on over the edge and now you're talking about going back to like that hyperthyroid. We're starting pressors. We're giving, you know, inotropic drugs. And you're confusing the whole picture even more. Yeah. I think of it like airplane stalls. You go too fast mm-hmm. in, some, in certain scenarios, especially, you know, those fighter jets get to do all the fun stuff. Right. But even helicopters, too. You go so fast, so long, and then I try to pump the brakes real fast. What are you going to do? You're going to stall out. Yeah. It's like, hey, man, what, what am I going to do here? So that that's where that, you know, Esmolol, because we carry it daily, you know, Wrap it on, wrap it off. Whereas labetalol has a pretty decent half-life. If, if you smoke somebody with 20 of it, be ready because, you know, you're going to get peak in, you know, about five to 10 minutes, and that might last up to 30 minutes. So if you put yourself in a hole, you're going to be there a minute, and it's going to get a little crafty to try to get out. Yeah, you know, that past history of all the long-term hypertension that went along with this uh, thyroid going out of control leads to the to the heart failure you didn't know about, especially with the, the dilated heart failure. Um, so then it complicates it when you try to treat that because you overshot, but you throw the same thing to make it a little more complicated for you is you didn't really think a whole lot about the history that's there. And they told you that this patient was also an asthmatic. And now you've given this asthmatic, uh, these beta blockers. And um, because of the way that they work, now you've made your asthmatic patient worse. And so then you kind of think about which drugs would you do to fix that, you know, and like um, albuterol is a good drug that we normally would go with with uh, your asthmatic patient, but because of the receptor sites that it works on, it may not do very much for you and that you have to go with something like atrovent or something that, uh, a combivent that has a different route to the receptor sites. Um, because, you know, I mean, if that's all you have at the time you're given as, as asthmatic, 
this bronchial dilator that normally would work for them and you move into even further, um, I'm going to put them on some type of a continuous nib that's there. Um, it, it's not working so much in the lungs that you had, but you're still getting the heart effects for it. Oh, yeah. So this patient that you were too fast for that also has a dilated cardiomyopathy that you've beta blocked down too much that now is hypotensive that may not be even normal rate heart rates, but they're now maybe hypotensive. You're also given this heart effective albuterol to them by large doses because you're given continuous. When you got to think about it, that the drug that you just gave is the drug that's blocking the drug that should be fixing. So you need to dig a little deeper into your pockets to go with the next drug. So We're just giving you a quick medical speed ball and seeing right. what happens. That's right, yeah. <laughs> so everything that I read that say and I'm happy you brought up the asthmatic mm -hmm. because I didn't write this down on a little note sheet. If you have a severe asthmatic or reactive airway disease, whatever you want to call it, and I need to give you something for rate control, this is one of those patients where I can bring cardizem to the table and get a similar effect because, you know, if you're, if you've got a heart rate at 160, your febrile, all the things I want to get your heart rate down. And that target goal by all the literature is a hundred. You know, if you got a heart rate of 160, I don't want it 60, especially on these thyroid patients. I want it at 100. I want to slowly back it down. It's kind of like blood pressure. And yes. I want to slowly yes. back it down. I want to get it down to where I'm three digits, but barely three digits. Yes. yes. And, you know, if if you give them a push or something or start them on an infusion and for your asthmatics, cardizem would be the drug of choice. Once I'm getting about 120, I'm, I'm kind of peeling back just a second because I don't want to overshoot. And a lot of times, unfortunately, in our scenarios or our world, you know, that goes back to that hyperdrive of I'm going to fix it now. And that's just, you know, type A people. We're, we're, we're going to work. We're going to fix it. If you overshoot, you can make things really bad really quick. Yeah. So it's kind of just a slow dial back. If I went from 160, 140, 120, okay, let's slow down. I don't want you at, you know, 40 in just a minute. Yeah. The other thing with that is something on the street, you know, you can give these patients, you look at them and you go, okay, well, if they'll let you, you get a heart rate on them and you get a blood pressure on them and they're hypertensive and they're tachycardic. All right, well, great. Give them some fluid. Mm -hmm. And people look at me like, well, what are you talking about? I was like, well, if they've been in this state for any length of time, where are they? They'd be hydrated. Yep, right. All right. So I've got to try to have something about pump to fill out. I got to fill them back up. Now, which fluid you use is a whole game, but Give them a little bit of a bolus, make sure they're rehydrated again. All right. Then you deal with this problem you brought up with asthma or anything else, and you start talking about DILT. The other thing I would work, MAG. Yeah. So asthmatics, MAG, or is a wonder drug, but you worry about the hypotensive side of it. So you have to make sure you give these patients, all right, well, how is MAG going to affect heart rate? Well, it might necessarily nat naturally affect heart rate, but it dilates everything out. So maybe that might buy you a little bit. Yeah. All you're trying to do is mitigate enough of an effect of this drug to where you can increase cardiac output, make sure you slow everything down and say, all right, let's, let's pump the brakes. Let's go back to a little turtle mode yeah. or halfway to turtle mode anyway. Yeah. And, you know, I, I'm happy you talked about fluids. So, you know, they're sensible and insensible losses, right? You know, if, if I cut your arm and bleed you out 500 mLs, you know, that's a sensible loss. I can say, hey, you lost 500 mLs. These patients that are in hyperdrive, you know, your, your respiratory rate's 40, your heart rate's 160, you're hyperthermic, your insensible losses are off the charts. So to try to keep up with these patients, it may take a fluid bolus. You might have to go, you know, for children, 
their weight base in half just to keep up with their insensible losses. A foley is important here as much as they're not going to like it. Yeah. And you don't, everybody wants to like play with it, but yeah. yes. keeping up with it, man, it's a thing. Yeah. The, and, and trying to measure those insensible losses, there's a reason they're insensible losses. Yeah. You, you can estimate them based off, you know, all the different things going on. But fluid resuscitation, even despite them being tachycardic and hypertensive, is a thing and needs to be paid attention to. You know, not the coolest thing in the world. You know, we talk about Esmolol and all these different drugs that are all cool and things that we can do. But uh, there's, there's people or pyretic people that are febrile um, treating that. And, and in the, mm -hmm. the acute care emergency setting, uh, it gets overlooked a lot. Like they're just, they're febrile. Okay. All right. Um, but when you really get down to the, you know, the real bolts of it, if you have a fever, you feel like garbage. Make them um, feel better. Yeah, it, it, even if it's that point. Um, and then you add into the cardiac output side that as the heart rate is, uh, is higher, they're not feeling, they're not getting actually coronary artery time to feel to actually meet the heart's demand for what it's doing. So even though it seems like it's a benign, it's, do we really need to treat that? It's really still important. I mean, it's just as important as all the other cool things we do. There is a definite reason we carry Tylenol in our big pharmacy bag. Yeah. So I mean that, and then IV Tylenol has become so yeah. prevalent and so common now. You know, we're all about IV stuff. Yeah. Man, give it IV. Yeah. Hey, you can be real fancy with IV. There is rectal suppositories for Tylenol that does a job just as good. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, nobody likes it. You might have to put a glove on, but two actually, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it works just as good. It's it's part of that process. You gotta you gotta pay attention to little things. So keeping the fever down, giving them some fluid, make sure they got volume. Okay. Let's try the, the Ativan trick, the Versed trick. Both work yeah. pretty well. Um, and it, again, you're all just trying to calm them down. A lot of these patients come in, and honestly, from an EMS side of the street, you walk in the door, and they're anxious. They're sitting there. They're like, they can't get this sitting right. And then they're, they're an SVT. All right. Mm -hmm. First thing, you know, we're all treated in paramedic school and nursing school is recognize what SVT is. Your heart rate at 160. It's not uncommon for these patients to be 180. Right. And sitting there just trucking along, man. Yeah. So SVT 220 minus the age. You know, and that's a big thing a bunch of people lose is, especially with SVT, is if you got a 30-year-old, they can have sinus tack up to 190. Is it comfortable to look at? No, it makes, it stresses me out, and I hope, I'm sure it probably stresses y'all out, too. If you got, you know, a 20 or 30-year-old with a heart rate of 190, 200. Who's chasing me? Yeah, yeah what what's going on? <laughs> yeah. If mine's that high. Right. Yeah, but if you got sinus tack, and that's something that's been beating my head, we don't treat sinus tank we don't treat that number you treat the underlying cause so that's that's one of those things to your point is sure you're an svt or you think it's svt slow down because you know all this is excited and you know you can get real amped up and excited as a provider but slow down is is that really svt or is that sinus if it's sinus oh well you know unless they're having you know to your point you know slowing down filling pressures then that's a whole other problem right. in a game but we dress, we address the underlying cause of sinus tack. You convert SVT. But you get these patients and they show up and this sinus tack, SVT picture, and you want to give them a denison. Great. A denison buys you and it goes right back into it naturally because their their system's in overdrive and everything else. Okay, great. We'll give them some volume, give them something else. Right. The old school trick was I was always taught is all right, cool. You gave them a denison, it didn't work, give them some fluid. Right. Everybody's like, well, I mean, you got to fill a heart. You got to fill a yeah. pump. You got to have something to pump around, mm -hmm. increase your cardiac output with that. Yeah. Yep. So now that's the kind of street side of us fixing it, right? 
And uh, when you get into, you know, the ivory tower hospital, ooh, we have all the fun stuff. You know, they say, going back just to what we hit on, first thing is you got to block your production of thyroid hormone. So that's going to be your thionamides, methamazole, PTU, and each one has its own little side effect profile of, you know, ooh, we'd rather use this or not. The, in my mind, methamazole starts with an M. It works on our main problem, which is your thyroid. PTU starts with a P. It works in the periphery, and that's going to help con- stop the conversion of T4 into T3. So next thing in, is your iodine solutions, and there's a little you know quotation or a star beside this. Once you give your thionamide, you wait an hour, and then we give our iodine solution and I'm going to put a little insert in here. We talked about our tachycardias with thyroid, right? There's a reason they say wait an hour with your iodine solutions because your thyroid likes iodine, really loves it. You don't give you these thyroid patients amiodarone because it is has a very high iodine content. And if you give iodine at the wrong time, it can really jack the whole system up. You can throw them back into, you know, a hyperthyroid state. Okay, where it would be there's, a case, there's a case study I found reading this, and I was waiting for it. I knew it was coming. That they gave 300 bolus of amio instead of the 150 over 10 minutes and threw them right into VTAC and then had to do all kinds of things to yeah. try to get them out of I mean, it. People think of that might not be, I mean, it's like, I mean, who would do that? You know, but like in all reality, this patient that's presenting to you can look very much like a something you think that's common, which is an SVT. And so you move down the SVT guidelines and, and you might get into this amiodarone to give. Um, this patient is a heart-related patient because he's been heart-related. Um, heart-related patients normally take aspirin every day. Well, aspirin every day for these people makes things worse. So you, you take this picture and you're like, well, I mean, I'm going to give this guy some amiodarone. And now you've made this picture worse. It's not that you meant to do it. It's just sometimes we get into this, they're hyperdynamic, so we get hyperdynamic. Yes. And we have to fix this because they're at a heart rate of 220. And it's like they have always taught us every time you, know, you fix that very quickly. And that's not always the case. You know, I mean, and it goes back to your inches or it goes back to your past history that, you know, 90% of all the diagnosis we're going to make is not only lab values and x-rays and images, it's talking to people and touching people. It's your physical exam. It's your history. It's your back information of what has been going on. So um, didn't do it on purpose. Yeah. But once you gave it. Once you get like, there, you're there. And it, like I said, it don't, it don't back off quick. That's all I say. I'm, I'm no. like, thanks, Will. <laughs> we, we thought we was on the right page, but you pushed the drug and now yep. we're in a world. Now we're, now now we're down talk here. about yeah. a storm. Yeah. yeah you, when you hit the spiral, things get out of hand. Yeah. So your thionamides, iodine solutions. And there, there's several different of those out there. Your SSKIs, Lugol solution, nobody in EMS has that. This is your ivory tower. We're, we're at a hospital. And but, and but to that point, it's something you got to think about. So a lot of times for us, and I'll, I'll pick on me specifically, I walk into these ICU to ICU transfers, mm-hmm. right? And we're going from big hospital to bigger hospital. They're big hospital because they got something else. They're established or whatever. And you're going from big hospital to big hospital. Well, we carry six punts routinely on the aircraft. Mm-hmm. What can I cut off? Right. Some of these drugs that are infusions that are like this, you don't, A, you don't just cut them off because yep. it will throw the whole 
system back into a shock state. Yeah. But B, they're that important. So yeah. ask. If you don't know what this is because it's got a name that's about 15 feet long, hey, what is that and what is it used for? Yeah. And a bunch of these drugs, your point, are you, once you give them, you repeat the dose a little bit later on. So if you have a IV iodine solution and we go in for a transfer and, the, you know, it's a That's an 18-hour one, isn't it? I'm, I'm one not of sure them on 18. dosing. It's weird. It's The timing's not normal. I don't remember so, that. And they give you a bag that says, look, in 30 minutes, you start this. Right. Okay, this might be one of those iodine solutions, or they might give you a dropper, right, for your oral solutions. In 30 minutes, you need to give this. Yeah. Okay, why? This is that reason why it might be an hour down the road. You know, we got there quickly. It's been recognized. They've started their treatment algorithm. This is one of those drugs that can be time sensitive. Yeah. And the reason it's time sensitive is what we hinted to. If you jack with the iodine or iodide at the wrong time, we don't want our dude in VTAC, right? Yeah, those those ICU players, you're you're really part of the complete care. And and I, I think about it because working in an ICU, it's sometimes you uh, – it's not always the best. We pick on different times of things of cleaning up when you're done type thing because it's just who you are maybe. Some people aren't that way. It doesn't, I mean, it is what it is. But when you walk in and, and you come behind a, somebody that's taking care of somebody, um, not only are you looking at what's infusing on the pole, but pay attention to what's hanging on the pole. Yep. Um, what What is empty that they didn't throw away? Um, sometimes that's the information that they didn't give you. Um, and it's good that they didn't throw it away. But it's the it's clue. There. That's the clue right. that's going to make your day all kinds of that's different. Right. It's very important to look at not just the active stuff that you're dealing with, but what's left over. When you walk in the room and you're looking on the counters of the ICU room or ER, what's sitting around you? And that means that at some point in time, that probably became part of that patient's care. And those medicines that you see are important to be able to talk about. It's a, it's, and I like, I'll bring it back to airway. Something we do with all the time is how many ET tubes are spent on That's the floor. Right. That's right. Mm -hmm. so think of it the same way. Yep. How many drugs are already spent hanging yep. on the pole or in the trash or what have you. Oh, you don't mean we don't get every bit of information and report every time we go right. see somebody? Right. Yeah. I mean, um, and then, you know, just going down this list, four is your glucocorticoid as well. You know, to me, anything in endocrine that's severe, you're going to get a steroid. And then the last thing is your bile acid sequestrant. So, and then, you know, your beta blocker as always. Uh, fun little thing I didn't know. If you have a patient with an iodine allergy, you know, because we talked about that, what do you give them? It's lithium. Can you believe that? You know, you know they're, they're already hyperactive, a little psychotic. Maybe we're going to give them antipsychotic. Well, no, it... It works on a similar pathway as your iodine solutions as to try to block that uh, that peripheral or central binding that's going to stimulate that mm -hmm. pathway. So, you know, similar to if you have somebody with a reactive airway, do we want to give them beta blockers? Well, probably not. If you have somebody that has a documented, like, severe shellfish iodine allergy, am I going to pour a Lugol solution down their mouth? Probably not. But you have another option, which is lithium. And I'm not getting into dosing and all that fun stuff. That's above my pay grade. So that brings me to a little bit of a point that I wanted to talk about. We Again, we talked about beta blockers. You can use what you have available. Propanolol is typically the standard mm -hmm. beta blocker for all storms, uh, but it's availability and what you can get. Esmolol is great. On and off quick. Uh, Labetalol is probably the second option most people go with. I, honestly, metoprolol is 
there, but mm-hmm. not everybody. it's more selective. So you're not going to get the same hit as you would as the others. Um, but we've talked about a couple of different options, Dig, Mag, all those other things. One thing I wanted to touch on a little bit with this, and I, I didn't put it on the sheet, guys, is is the overdose side of this. Mm-hmm. So these patients, a lot of times, the reason we deal with them is overdose. Um, so from a, they're on Synthroid every day, whether they're hypo or hypothyroid, do they take all of it? Do they underdose it? And again, it's a dosing thing, or they're trying to figure it out with their primary care, and then they get thrown in this thing, and now it's us. Um, I want to touch on two things. One, thyroid storm-induced by Synthroid. Mm-hmm. It you still treat it the same way. Yes. Don't don't think of it as something different. Yes, it's going to be take a lot of time. They may end up on CRRT and all those other things to try to cook it off, but it's the same way. The other side of that is the hypothyroid overdose. Um, you brought up lithium, and I'm glad you did. So a lot of people that are on lithium for psychotic stuff, they dry up. A lot of people don't like to take it because they turn puffy and this and the other. They basically throw themselves in a hypothyroid state. Lithium overdose. Mm-hmm. It's basically you're throwing yourself into a hypothyroid state. Right. Um, and it's treated almost identically the same way. So now I'm happy you brought up the overdose topic. If you have somebody that's already in a normal hypothyroid state, they have overdosed on their medication, and now we are very aggressively treating their overdose. We talked about what are the people like at their baseline, right? If you overshoot this, a hypothyroid overdose on Synthroid be prepared to see a hypothyroid state come back because that's their baseline. Now, it might take a couple hours, a day or two for them to resort back to it, but it's coming at some point. So that's just one of those care down the way. You know, okay, they're in thyroid storm today, but when we finally get all this cooked off, you're going to have to give it back to them. It's like you talked about the negative feedback loop. All you're going to do is go back to that state. So be mindful. You don't want to overshoot too much, and then they – now we're doing the whole opposite thing. That's right. Exactly. Now, um, you know, we like to talk about a bunch of different stuff, and we do a bunch of different stuff. Uh, but just like I handed to when we walked in here, my mind, when any patient, you know, I see it's ABCD. And, you know, I'd like to, before we close up on this, hit on that ABCD. Because regardless if you're in an ER, helicopter, an ambulance, we're ABCDing it out. You know, you know, are you going to throw some fun little other letters in there? Maybe. But if you can knock out ABCD consistently, you can keep people alive that shouldn't be alive. Yep. So, you know, and we've hinted along this the whole program, right? A is for airway. So how do we support our airway and our obtunded patients? A lot of those patients in, in this, talking about this case, you know, obviously they're totally obtunded, GCS, they're totally in a coma, they're all the way out, great. You probably have to intubate them for airway protection. That's just the way, the nature of the game. But those patients that are super anxious and they're anxious because they're hypoxic and their system's in overdrive, high flow. Right. Bypass. Yeah. The non-invasive stuff may buy you a little bit of time and then you're going to play with it. They're already at these weird pH states as well. So... You don't want a metabolic system to go into a respiratory system. You can kind of control that a little bit with BiPAP or those other modalities. So just something in my mind, and it's something you actually told me when I was in orientation here, right? If intubation is absolutely necessary, the number one question to ask myself, and I hit it coming back to myself pretty often, can I oxygenate? Can I ventilate this patient? Very Something very simple, right? Mm -hmm. Sure, we can go non-invasive, 
You know, if if you're on, you know, some of these trucks that are running nowadays are basic or advanced. If you can't throw down a, you know, ET tube or a super glottic, does bag mask work? Bag them. You don't have to intubate somebody to oxygenate and ventilate them. You know, if they're having nausea or if they've got a low GCS, can I really throw them on BiPAP? Well, if they can't protect their airway, I can't do it. So, you know, and can't you can position them a little bit differently, try to help be standing right there. That way, if there's any signs of nausea, pop the mask off. And, in, you know, this is another patient that hypoglycemia comes back into play. Are they altered and not maintaining their airway because their glucose is single digits? That's something I can fix pretty quickly while bagging them. Mm-hmm. And now you brought it up a gorder. Let's go into worst case scenario. I can't oxygenate. I can't ventilate. I've already pushed my drugs. If you got to go into a surgical crike and they have a goiter, you can have distorted anatomy. You can cut them and you can get into bleeding because thyroid is highly vascular. So that's one of those things where you talk about airway management. Everybody likes to be real aggressive. But if you put yourself in a bind, it can get out of hand real quick with these patients. Yeah, when I first started here, one of the best lessons I ever learned um, was just because you can doesn't mean you should. Um, there's a whole lot of things that you have at your disposal wherever you are, um, but not all the time is it the best option for somebody. Um, and that's that's important to remember that um, sometimes uh, you, you have options with everything and sometimes your options put you in the scenario that you're in and you can make it good or bad. And so when you think about it, um, if it's the intubation and that's where you have to go, you kind of have to know already of the direction you're going. Um, am I going to, if I fail with this, what are my options? So this is maybe the case of the person that's more of a um, uh, an awake intubation. Um, maybe it's somebody that even if you feel like you can get the intubation, do you, if they're so obtunded, do you really need true sedation, true paralytics versus uh, somebody that's already that's obtunded uh, some opioids that are there that are just something to knock off the edge um, that's there? Yeah, is that the easiest intubation in the world? No. Um, but when you give not only the sedation meds that knocks off some of their ability to respond, but um, a lot of things we don't always think about at times is it's just random that we just do it. Um, but when you give these paralytics to people, their venous blood return is off of their muscle tone. And that may be the wet banana that they're standing on. And when you snatch that, then they fall off. And you've given something that most everybody has moved to is long-acting paralytic. Now you've got a long-acting paralytic that has paralyzed them for long periods of time, reduces their venous return. They don't make much, much um, even bringing up their body temperature they don't move anymore you've got them totally open because they're sick you make the hypothermia the hypothermia even worse and so um, sometimes these patients are ones that i like i kind of have a different philosophy when i'm managing and post management of an airway that um it it's okay if they're awake if they're coughing against the, the tube uh, if they're moving their hands not not like i'm gonna overlook it but what that does for me is it 100 percent reminds me to manage what i wouldn't have managed before because if you make this perfect picture of sedation pain medicine and paralytics, some of those things go away. And then you overlook um, what you've caused. So I look at it from time to time as if I'm managing somebody in ICU, it might take me 
a few minutes to get sedation and pain management where I really need to get it, uh, redosing those people um, to keep them from overshooting. You know, I mean, so it keeps me from having somebody, even if they everything went well, they say everything went well, they come back to see me and they're like, you know what, though, I remembered your whole transport. Why? Because I never sedated them and gave them pain medicine again because they weren't moving. Maybe they weren't overly tachycardic, so I didn't think they needed it. You know, like, so it's just one of those things that, you know, it's it's a, just because you can don't mean you always should. The other part I want to mention, you talked about paralytics, but Atomidate, I mean, I'm a big Atomidate guy. I love it. I use it all the time. Um, but in this case, if you get that severe hypothyroid patient, the adrenal insufficiency, mm-hmm. it may, again, that wet banana analogy, right. it could be, and you kind of want like, all right, do I really want to use it? I mean, it's hemodynamically sensitive, all those other things. Yep. But that's one of those patients. I'm like, all right, well, here's the core tip before we do right, that. That's maybe. right. <laughs> yeah, that's and I got it in big bold right here is Atomidate. Yeah. The next one right down the list is ketamine. Mm-hmm. Uh, these people are in a, you know, a hyperagenergic state. Ketamine is known to cause, you know, that big catecholamine surge. If I really don't want my, your catecholamines thumping on you, in a hyperthyroid state, I really don't want to play with ketamine. You know, it, it, some people love it. You know, if those people are listening to this, sorry. But it can have dirty effects. I mean, for your hyperthyroid patients, do you want to amp them up? Do you want that big surge? You're worried about the heart rate. I mean, heart rate, heart rate alone is one of those numbers. Yeah. You know, don't don't base all your entire clinical decisions and everything you do off one number. Right? Yeah. But think about it. So now, and on the flip side of it, your hypothyroid patients... We, we, this didn't get like this today. Right. If they're catecholamine depleted, and I pop you with you know the one milligram or one to three per kg of the intubation dose, am I going to cook off the last thing that you're standing on that banana pill? If you're if you're on your last one or two catecholamines, and now I cook them off thanks to ketamine, and it's to you're in a you're in a rabbit hole again. To MD, to your point, like mm-hmm. man, if you if you take all right, ketamine is my option. That's the only thing I got. I got ketamine and fentanyl. All right, cool. That's the only drugs I got in my truck. It's the only thing I need today. Great. I'm not going to give the one per kilo. Mm-hmm. Maybe I give 0.5 per kilo. Right. And it's a hundred kilo patient. Mm-hmm. We're just doing easy number of mass. So it's fifty. Mm-hmm. Well, to, to mitigate that that dump, maybe I give fifty milligrams and put it in a hundred bag and let it run in. Right. Yeah. Slow slow it run in. This that and the other. Give them the fentanyl and everything mm-hmm. else. But you, to the point, you may not need all those other things to go along with it. Right. So, and then another thing I have listed right here is propofol. Everybody's favorite drug in hospitals, you know, the milk of amnesia. But, uh, you know, these high, co- you know, we've talked about tipping points. If somebody is in a weird cardiac output standpoint and are close to the tipping point of going into cardiogenic shock, I don't want to play with propofol. This is one of those drugs, If this is talking about intubation-wise, not so much in our world because you're pushing it. If you push a big loading dose of propofol to RSI somebody and they're at that tipping point, you may tip them over. So this is one of these, you know, and, and I've kind of hit on three different drugs and everybody's like, well, if you're not using Atomidate, Ketamine, or Propofol, what are you keeping them down with? Versed. This is one of these people, benzos are your friends. And look, if you give somebody enough opioids, they're going to be all yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, you know what I mean? Uh, but exactly. So much times that we... We have an opioid pandemic. Let's right, not even yeah. sugarcoat that, right? That's it right. works. That's Clearly right. it works. Right, yeah. So try it. Yeah. Now, again, I understand people... So not everybody carries the amount of narcotics. Right. You need to do that. Right. 
but it works. Yep. So, mm-hmm. you know, we've kind of smoked A, B, breathing, right? So, you know, you, you, you're one of these guys that when I ask ventilator questions to them, like, hey, Will, what you think about this? These people, you know, your normal patient has a normal amount of ventilation. These people where you have, you know, these higher metabolic demands or they may be in a respiratory acidosis because they've been hypo, hypoventilating for a couple hours or days. Mm-hmm. What kind of vent strategies would you use for these people? So I'm going to pick on something that MD told me a long time ago. Whatever they were doing before you started, think about it. Mm-hmm. And that thyroid storm patient, I won't say match it, but mm-hmm. try. Mm-hmm. So you a may, higher minute ventilation. High minute ventilation, you're going to higher rate, low volume, basically ARDS, but high rate, low volume, low PEEP, and let them, let them think what they got. You don't want to, the biggest thing with that, if you're using, whether it's BiPAP or you're invasive, drop your PEEP. Mm-hmm. The, you start with three, four, five, start with a lower number because they're A, they may already be auto-peeping if they're asthmatic or COPD because mm-hmm. those are fun too. But B, you don't want to drop that SVR more than you have to. Yeah. Um, for the hypo patients, look at if you've got a blood gas, great. But think about what their entitled CO2 is. If they're acidotic and you're making respiratory acidosis, blow it off. Mm-hmm. Get it out of there. So and to that point, your entitled is going to run about 10 points lower than your PCO2. So if they're in a respiratory acidosis and their entitled is 60, right? I'm guessing in a normal perfusion state quotation, their PCO2 is about 70. And then I'm working down that ladder. Yeah, drop it. I mean, you, you, all you're doing is you're making that pH drop. You're making them 10 times worse. Blow it out of there. Mm-hmm. If you get out safely, but increase your minute ventilation however you need to, whether it's higher. Usually I use higher rate right. uh, with the synth volumes. But it drop it out of there. Don't make your situation any worse than you have to. You already had to go to this intubation. Yeah. Think about it. Now, from a BiPAP perspective, again, we're talking about these patients that you're trying to pre-oxygenate before you ventilate them. And you're dealing with that same kind of patient that's got a low respiratory rate, this, that, and the other. See what kind of pressures they can tolerate. Mm-hmm. Remember, that change in pressure is going to be is correlating to your volume. Right. So if you can increase that uh, inspiratory pressure, great. Keep bumping it up. Don't just go with 5 or 8, or, I mean, 10, 12, 15. Yeah. We'll see what, see what you can get out of them. Yeah. And yeah. I think what's cool about this uh, in general, it, this is not your sick lung patient, hopefully, I mean, hopefully they didn't throw you that. Fing- all the fingers are crossed. You right. can't yeah. see them, but everybody's crossing fingers, toes, and everything yeah. else. Right? So, so you're hoping. Um, so I, I go back to what we're what you're meaning earlier, and we, we've discussed numerous times of what are you doing prior to. Um, your whole body is breathing off of receptor sites for baroreceptors, chemoreceptors, but it's a we breathe off of pressure normally in our body. Our body goes off of pressure settings. These people I would normally use pressure settings for um, and just let them drive themselves with it um, that's there and not taking it away because um, so many times we go with volume or whatever. If you had to put them on a ventilator for some reason um, because we like numbers, you know, I, I did my little math and I it's did there. my little per kilo stuff and I've got it here and it's on my tape. I always Man, let, let, that, let that box do all the math for you, bro. Oh, yeah. you, let let oh, that thing work. What, 12,505 <laughs> won't work on this yeah. one? Like, don't don't forget 21%. <laughs> so like, just don't don't paint yourself into that box. And I always talk about my tape I put on my leg and I put it on my arm and it's like a quarterback thing. I've got the worst case scenario. I've did all my common math um, when you get in there, but we, we like those numbers, but let them drive themselves, you know, um, and, you know, our worst enemy sometimes is our own alarms. You know, don't be afraid 
if I'm working in the hospital and I've taken the little hill stream of thou shalt not change the alarm, I get that. Um, but I'm looking at this patient and I'm managing this patient. And don't let the ventilator alarm that's giving you a, a high minute volume alarm because of the numbers that you dialed in um, change what the patient needs. Um, you know, he is your alarm, right? Yep. Yep. When you're looking at him and it's not working anymore, um, I, I, I have come to really love our Hamilton. Um, but the Hamilton is smart, but it's not the person that's in the acute crisis. You still you still need a clinician behind the Hamilton right. to figure out, yeah. hey, what's right and what's wrong for that's this right. patient. Change your alarms, meet the patient where they are, and do what they need to do. Yep. So breathing, 12,500 and 21% is not your friend. Actually think about it, right? Yeah, mm -hmm. think about a little bit about what you're doing. So circulation. So there's two ends of the circulation in my mind is hypotension, bradycardia, which is going to be typically more your hypothyroid friends because lower and lower. And now on your, you know, hyper, that's going to be your hypertension, tachycardia. And we've kind of hit on this a little as we went, you know, in your hypertension, tachycardia, our mythical unicorn, IV propanolol, labetalol, fluids, esmolol versus labetalol, all the different things. But in hypotension, where you have your hypothyroid patients, sure, we're addressing, you know, giving them IV synthroid or T3 if you have it. These people are going to be pressure resistant. You know, that's, that's in my mind, like I said, that's one hint that things just aren't normal. Uh, you know, in your bradycardia, sure, you have your ACLS algorithm, atropine, pacing, epi. That's kind of more the street side of it. I'm not a big fan of dopamine, but, you know, getting that heart rate up can also help you with some of your hypotension. But that's going to be one of your big hints in my mind is why is this not working? Like there's something else underlying. It's not a cardi true cardiac issue. Mm -hmm. There's an underlying thing. And then a bunch of times you can also see going back to our lab values we talked about, Hyperkalemia is common in these patients, you know, for a different number of etiologies, you know, low perfusion, your kidneys take a hit. You've got all these different hormones playing with your electrolytes. We have the privilege of having an ISTAT. If we're running an ISTAT and their potassium comes back at seven, sure, we can shift them, mm -hmm. right? Uh, we talked about fluids. We talked about hypertonic. If you're RSI in somebody... This, this hypotensive patient might be the one that we talk about push dose pressures. If they're bradycardic, I'm probably leaning to epi, you know, and I, whatever it takes. And the other thing with that is some of some of you just mentioned all those different states, whether it's hyperkalemia or they're bradycardic, either one. Take a second look at your EKG. I mean, those those Osborne waves are a thing. Okay. I mean, like if you see it there cold, cool. Try warming them up a little bit. See if that helps you out a little bit. Maybe that's part of the bradycardia issue on top of this other stuff, but maybe that's expanding everything that's going on. So don't just throw the EKG out as far as, and then the same thing with the sine wave. Mm -hmm. Like, Hey, is, do I have PT waves? Great. Is it starting to look at a little bit out? Cool. Let's just shift them. If you don't have an ISTAT with you, all right, let's try it. You're on the street and all you got is calcium. Great. Call me control. If you don't, if you have to call them, take care of some gluconate and see what happens. Mm -hmm. yeah. And, uh, you know, for your continued care, Levo is typical. That's essentially every shock state. Levo is like your frontline drug. Um, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and then if you have somebody who's in a negative inotropic state, which is like more of your late stages hypothyroid, dobutamine, melanone, I'm not getting in the argument which one you'd rather. Uh, and then you always can just continue down that pathway. Uh, 
that's my thought on it. The other, the other thing I want to bring up is what, when you get to that thyroid storm patient and you talk about the tachycardic hypotensive, mm-hmm. what do you, you know, how, how do you play that game? It's, it's not, none of that's easy. So you're, do you just, you know, cardiovert them, mm-hmm. give them a little electricity you say, oh, this is, this is the problem. They're just, they just need to slow it down. Right. Pharmacologically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Probably a better option than electricity. Right. So. But how do you manage that? Well, you got to give them a little bit of something to back them up. Well, I don't want to give them anything that's going to take their heart off. I don't want to give them anything that's going to make it more irritable. You might can play with vasopressin if you mm-hmm. got it. You might can play with, I mean, Levo, yeah. You might can play with Neo. Mm-hmm. Anything that doesn't have that stimulus, I got a heart rate's already, you know, 190. It's right. not making any worse. Yeah, but we're not telling people in unstable folks no. not to go Edison before no. Edison, but it, this is one of those times you can – it takes a little thought. Yeah. Think about it. If, hey, it didn't work, or why didn't it work? Mm-hmm. Why is it not doing what I wanted it to do? So, anything else you'd like to add on circulation? Nope. The last thing in my mind that I keep playing during patient transports, A, B, C, D. D, disability. You know, hypoglycemia, it's a real thing in anything endocrine. Any of these endocrine disorders will jack with your glucose. You know, if it's an adult, Give them some D50. Be prepared for refractory hypoglycemia and people that are hypoglycemic. Like, this is not the person that, you know, one stick of D50 might fix them. You might have to chase it with D5. You you know, in an ICU setting, you might have somebody on a D10 infusion. If we're transporting somebody on D10, for the love of God, don't stop it. Mm-hmm. Like, this is one of those. Probably there for a reason. Yes. Uh, and these people, you know, we've talked about metabolic demands. They're going to have increased versus decreased metabolic demands as far as the whole system. So it's something to think about. Seizures, hyperactivity. If I run up on somebody on the street, am I going to throw ketamine at them if they're hyperactive? Well, we've already talked about, you know, you're, then you're getting into the catecholamine game. Then you're getting into triggering stuff. Probably not. Benzos are probably a safer option. If you got somebody that's hyponatremic and seizing, 3% is going to be a decent choice. And then the last thing I have on here. If I have intubated you and you had a low GCS, you still need some sort of sedation and analgesia as hemodynamics allow. Yeah. So, I mean, it might not be, you know, slugging you with tenoverset or putting you on fusion of tenoverset. I might have to microdose you to get you there, just keep you comfortable. And then same thing with, like, fentanyl. Because I say, I say fentanyl, it's not as hard on your preload as morphine or dilaudid. So, I mean, you can eat morphine and some Benadryl. I mean, like, play play whatever cocktail game you got to play to mitigate your effects. Yeah. And some people, I'm not a big fan of it, but some people really like out of these because yeah. it just lasts forever. Yeah. I mean, honestly. And for the teams that carry out of to be uh, judicial, I guess, by the supplies that you have. I mean, a lot of times we don't even think about it a lot, but uh, if it has to be refrigerated and it can only be out 28 days, and a lot of people just throw it away at 28 days, there's a not just this case in particular, but all of your patients that are intubated. I mean, it's a benzodiazepine. It can be utilized in any of them that's there. Uh, yeah, when you walk in the hospital, everybody always thinks. I, I gave this patient some Ativan. First thing I say, well, did, it, did they seize? No. I mean, I had two days till it was going to be thrown yeah. away, and I gave it to him. Like you know, um, so just kind of thinking out. That just goes back to thinking outside the box with everything that you have that's there. Um, and specifically to a team that has a lot of different drugs to be doing the right thing by the drugs instead of just throwing them away. 
Um, this patient can have a plethora of things, and even if it's your general protonics that was going to be going out next week, he's an ICU player. He's always going to get every this time pro- this protonics every single day to prevent any type of um, ulcers that he might have from stress. So yep. go even further with looking past the initial thing that you've managed. What else could I do? Because now you are truly, and a lot of times we say, well, that's not really what we do. But when we're in the critical care environment, we are in the critical care environment. And it started when you got there. So whether you're starting it or the patient's been there for 10 days, like you talked about before, and they're moving on because they need something else, you're still in the overall picture. Not per se that you're going to get a MAR printed out to you and check yeah. it off when you get it. But it is important if they get scheduled meds that you're going to give it. So um, it's just all part of it that what could I do to generate the patient to make them better down the road? And a lot of times we look at even things like protonics. If they have a GI bleed, I give it to them. But everybody that you intubated has a stress that they didn't have two days ago. And if they're in the ICU, they might need stuff like that. So all those different drugs and care that's there, you just kind of got to open yourself up. And, and that's one of those things that I'm, I'm proud of our program, that we have that kind of attitude mm-hmm. of we're flying the ICU to you. And, you know, if if people don't have that thought process, if your your program doesn't, you know, take pride in the fact that you can make difference down the road and short, short-term transports for long-term outcomes, yeah. maybe you should – rethink that you know let's let's get on board we want to make a positive difference for them down the road let's let's drop the icu days let's drop Mm -hmm. the hospital days let's get them back to their family and get them back home get them back where they want to be get them back to that around that tractor and they can tear that on that on uh, rabbit Mm -hmm. turtle themselves we ain't got that's right and i mean it's just little stuff and in my mind if i chase abcd all day long if i try to set them up for success then the end goal should be they return back to baseline or near baseline functioning. Before we split, can you drop those three M's one more time? Because that was that was pretty good about the, especially for thyroids themselves. Yeah. Um, let me see if I have my little note over here. I mean, you only got fifteen pieces of paper. Right? I know, man. Oh. I was prepared. Uh, metabolic mentation and movement. So metabolic demands, and that can go to uh, glucose levels as well. Uh, mentation: Are you down and out? Are you in this excited delirium? But at both ends of that spectrum, there's a coma state. Uh, you know, myxedema coma might just start off as I'm weak and feel bad before you're like GCS of three and out of it. And then the last one is movement, you know, that hyper excited or weakness, right? So three M's. And I'm going to give some shout out. That was, I listened to Scott Weingard, and that was uh, one of his mm-hmm. kind of quotes, if I'm not mistaken. Good deal. Yep. Guys, anything else on thyroids? Good. All right. Well, appreciate your time. Thanks for coming today. Sitting down, chilling. Yeah. Yes, sir. This has been a presentation of Blue Crew Medicine.